It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Sego Ani Bojo Kwekwe Tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also download the Radio Player Canada app and uh, just type in E L M N T F M 95.7 or 106.5. And just uh, follow the instructions, and you could be listening anywhere across the country. I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show today. Anna Collins is with Amnesty International Canada, and she is on the line to talk to us about something quite interesting, I might say. And uh, something that's coming up uh, for December 10th, which is International Human Rights Day, uh, at which time around the globe, I guess, everywhere, Amnesty International uh, asks people to write letters. And you don't have to know the people you're writing letters to. So, Anna, welcome to the show. Que bonjour, David. Thanks for having me. It's it's our pleasure. And can you, so I gave that a little bit of an introduction. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about uh, what Amnesty International does on International Human Rights Day and ask people to do? For sure. So this is... Um, literally the world's biggest human rights uh, action. It's called Right for Rights. And the idea is that Amnesty focuses on some of the cases that we've been working on for years uh, to bring global attention to the case. And so in this example, um, Amnesty has been working with Gracineros and the folks there for a long time, advocating both on logging rights and water rights and health rights. And uh, this year, the focus was specifically designed to be on young rights defenders. And so we thought Gracineros was a perfect example of a bunch of really articulate, smart kids who are working hard to defend their community and their futures. And we could really give them some boost in terms of spreading their word and their message by sharing it with all of the 8 million international amnesty members around the world. Yeah, now you mentioned Grassy Narrows, and if you go to amnesty.ca, you can certainly see uh, the Grassy Narrows uh, pitch that you've got up there uh, for writing a letter and, and asking uh, the uh, people to get involved. One of the 10, as you mentioned, youth-oriented uh, 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 segments that you're, you're going after this year. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so um, now, of course... Um, you, your title with Amnesty International is Indigenous Rights Campaign Advisor, yes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Why do you laugh? It's a bunch of words. It's a bunch of words that, that uh, is sort of vague, but basically I, I, um, I build relationships with Indigenous folks, mm-hmm. um, both in Canada and around the world, and I advocate uh, for respect for Indigenous rights. And I help my colleagues um, with their campaigns as well. And helping my colleagues who, uh, it's not always clear that their campaign is also uh, associated with Indigenous rights, but things like climate change and policing and criminalization of dissent, those sorts of issues are front and center as well as, um, you know, the more typical rights cases that people are familiar with when they think Indigenous peoples. 
Now, you mentioned something when, when I asked you about your title, and I'm glad you did because it was a, a second question I was going to, to link this to. Uh, when you said you not only are there for an advisor for Indigenous people in Canada but uh, and communities, but, but around the world, I think that is very cool that you, that you are linking uh, to other Indigenous communities and people in other countries. Thanks. I'm glad you feel that way. Um, there's so much commonality internationally. Mm. Um, you know, indigenous beliefs and ways of being um, are are different from nation to nation and people to people, obviously. But there are some deep commonalities, and I think that's really reflected in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, where the knowledge keepers and elders who drafted that document, they really articulated things like um, importance of land to not only rights, but also identity and culture and and everything else that goes along with that. So, um, and, And so not only do Indigenous people around the world share some some commonalities uh, in terms of values and teachings, but also the experiences faced when it comes to colonization, obviously. And today, in, like in the modern day, it's often the same forces affecting people in different countries. So you think of things like mining, um, resource exploitation, oil and gas. It's literally the same companies in different countries doing pretty much the same kind of stuff to different peoples. And um, so there's a real possibility, I, I believe, for solidarity and building awareness. And it's really important, too, because Canada is often thought of as this sort of light beacon of respect for human rights and leadership in the world. And certainly my experience around the world that's what I've been I've been told by people I've met. But that ignores the reality of Indigenous people who live within the Canadian state and have to deal with the realities of that. So there's a lot of opportunity for education internationally as well. Yeah, now when you say education and, and on the international scale and you talk about the same companies in different countries doing the same kind of thing... It makes me wonder um, when you guys see this, because you're you're the ones that are that are that are, are in this position, being able to to see this kind of thing that is happening and seeing that it is the same companies. Is it uh, frustrating? Is it, uh, it, it are you are you getting any uh, positive results from these companies in terms of uh, getting them to change some of their approaches, perhaps? It is frustrating. Um... I think trying to change the world is is not an easy thing to do. Mm. <laughs> I just came back from a business and human rights session at the UN, and it was mainly business leaders and governments talking about what can be done to not only uh, recognize, but also protect human rights. It, it can be hard to believe, and it's not always the case, but there are steps being taken Uh, Some companies have gone above and beyond when it comes to um, their understanding of something like free prior informed consent or um, access to remedy when uh, lands have been appropriated, for instance. Um, And, you know, I was in one session at the UN last week on free prior informed consent 
And at one point of the five Indigenous presenters, one of them asked, you know, who in the room is from government? Who in the room is who is Indigenous? Who in the room is from business? And half of the people in that room were from business. Mm. And it, to me, that showed that of those probably 300 people in the room, um, there's a lot of recognition of the need to understand what Indigenous rights are and how to work with them. And I don't mean work around them because mm. it's becoming increasingly clear that that's just not going to be possible. And um, business, um, if you think of things like uh, tar sands development and other places, it's becoming hard for businesses to operate if they ignore Indigenous rights entirely. And you see things like banks refusing to give um, exploration loans because they know that their money might get tied up in courts for a long time if the business isn't doing due diligence right from the beginning. So that's a long way to say I, I do see change. Um, it's slow, but um, I think we're definitely coming to a point in global history when there's no choice anymore. Mm. Rights have to be respected. Well, let's certainly hope that it moves faster in that direction and that it isn't too late. It's, it's encouraging to hear even what you just said about banks uh, saying, mm. you know, uh, trying to, to halt it from day one if due diligence is not being done and rights are not being respected. That's encouraging right there because, let's face it, my businesses do uh, operate on the bottom line. Yeah, and sometimes they seem like they sort of steamroller over people and governments and communities and rights, and it feels that, you know, there's no, there's nothing that grassroots humans can do, right? Mm. Um, but, but you know, voices are small, and especially in something like this Right for Rights um, campaign, when you put millions of voices together all asking for the same thing, it's hard to ignore that, right? Yeah, I'm glad you brought us back to Right for Rights because uh, if this is what we're here to talk about. And of course, um, there are events going on uh, that coincide with this. Yes. Um, I don't have the current number, but the last one I heard is I think there was over 200 individual events registered around the country. We have a website, writeathon.ca, where mm -hmm. um, we have resources available and you can find the events and sign up or get involved. Um, and join in, and uh, so it's it's uh, all the information is there. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Writeathon.ca, and um, uh, you know when you go to that uh, writeathon and also uh, Amnesty.ca, uh, you can find out about the other stories that you're that you're presenting for this writeathon and asking people to write a letter. Uh, on behalf of these youth and these stories and these communities to try to get action taken and bring awareness uh, so that people realize that, uh, so, so the people in power need to recognize. By the way, where do these, where do these letters go? Well, <clears throat> it depends on the person, but I okay. will say we've been receiving them in our office mm -hmm. and they bring tears to my eyes to, hear, to read them, to be, mm -hmm. you know, just this like beautiful outshowing of solidarity and support and understanding. Um, so we get letters from members, amnesty members, to the community, but we also get letters that we will deliver to the government. Mm. Some people write directly to the government. Mm. 
Now, um, when you when you when you say that about writing a letter, you don't you can you can write just one letter if you like on a specific uh, area that is of of uh, concern for you or or something you want to help, or you can choose to write uh, more than one letter. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, even though my particular focus this year for the Right for Rights campaign is Grassy Narrows, um, there are nine other cases that are equally important, um, equally necessary to, uh, to uh, speak out against um, uh, from countries all over the world, young people who are standing up for their rights. Right. And uh, so just to reiterate uh, this, what we're talking about is the right for rights that Amnesty International is asking people to get involved with on in, in and around the International Human Rights Day, which is on December 10th. Now, there is an event coming up on December 7th uh, in Toronto, and that's taking place uh, from 1 to 7 p.m. Uh, in the afternoon until 7 p.m. in the evening. And, and that is at the Center for Social Innovation Annex at 720 Bathurst Street. But it's not the only thing going on. And uh, as was pointed out by Anna, uh, you can go to the uh, amnesty.ca or writeathon.ca website and you can find out more about where there might be some events going on in, in your area. And also you can find out about writing a letter and it gives you all the information. You can sign up there. And I believe, Anna, there's, there's actually a, a way for it to help you uh, to make that writing process much easier. Yes, and I don't have the website in front of me, but um, there, there are, there is language for people to use, and mm-hmm. there are, uh, there is information about contact details and and such, uh, so that you're not totally on your own having to think of exactly the right wording for the prime minister. Right, and uh, Anna, uh, my guest is uh, Anna Collins, and she's the Indigenous Rights Campaign Advisor for Amnesty International Canada. She is in Ottawa, which is where their office is located, and I'm guessing that's where the letters would go to your office in Ottawa. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if people choose not to um, mail the Prime Minister or the relevant ministers directly, they can send it to our office, and again, that website's available. Uh, the address is available on the website. And you're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. And you can also listen to us on the uh, web, uh, b- on our website, and also by downloading the Radio Player Canada app and typing in uh, elmntfm.ca and uh, 106.5 or 95.7. And as I mentioned, Anna Collins is our guest on the air right now. Uh, she's the Indigenous Rights Campaign Advisor for Amnesty International. Uh, Anna, you mentioned that your focus is a Grassy Narrows uh, with the campaign that they had. And, and their story we are familiar with. Some people may not be familiar with, but it, it's a very troubling story in many ways to hear about the struggle that they've been going on for you know some 50 years or so in dealing, as you mentioned, with logging and also with the water. It's, it's pretty despicable, I feel. Um, as you say, 50 years this April... Um, with uh, <clears throat> the community's been advocating for cleanup of the mercury that was dumped into their water system of the Wabagon River. Uh, there was a pulp mill up there in Dryden, and they were given permission for, by the government to, um, you know, dump their wastewater directly into the system. And that was, you know, for about for a few years in the 60s. And then in 1970, the federal government told the community that they needed to stop fishing because um, what happens is 
Mercury is obviously a very heavy metal, and it falls down to the to the ground, uh, the silt and the sand that's on the bottom of of a water system, and that's exactly where fish often spawn mm-hmm. and hang out and eat. And so, um, you have to think sort of um, biology web of life, and and very quickly um, as um, walleye, for instance, are eating the fish, um, the frogs and the crayfish at the bottom of the river, they're absorbing the mercury and it has nowhere to go except for to stay in their bodies. And so for a number of years, the community didn't realize that they were being poisoned because of this. Um, and then there was some confusion, you know, and the government's been pretty shady about admitting that harm was done and <clears throat> resolving the problem. And of course, to make it worse, when you have uh, an order from the government saying to stop fishing in your community, well, you have to imagine that all of the folks who come up from the south on their summer vacation and use the services of the guides and the fishing lodges, the restaurants, the cabins, they stop coming because they're scared. Mm. And so a secondary... um, result of the poisoning was that the local economy collapsed. Mm. And we know in Canada what some communities face when it comes to poverty levels. Um, And when you're isolated or a little bit remote, uh, there's not a lot of economic opportunities to turn to if you're told to stop fishing. And um, we also know, of course, what all the symptoms of the poverty that's created um, and right now, there's a lot of youth, for instance, and little children who are put into foster care, for instance, so that they can be further south with closer access to medical care. And then the result of that, of course, too, is some disconnect between the generations. Elders aren't taking their grandkids out fishing, necessarily. They're not taking their grandkids out uh, to pick medicines or berries, and then you see things like values aren't being shared, language isn't being taught, and so the effects of mercury contamination are not just health and it's not just the environment, but it's like a complete system that's been affected, and for the community, that's been devastating. Yeah, when you uh, when you explain that, of course, and you're quite right, uh, we tend to forget about those those other things that are affected. Once you, uh, it's this trickle down system that that just happens uh, from one thing. Uh, Anna, can you explain at all? I, I was a little a little surprised when you said you know it's a pulp mill that was dumping the wastewater. But w- w- where is the mercury coming from from the wastewater that they were dumping? Do you know? Um, I'm not terribly sure on the details of how um, pulp and paper mm. <laughs> uh, factories uh, work, yeah. but they but they do use some heavy chemicals in the process. Mm. And uh, I mean, mercury is something that literally the ancient Egyptians knew was poison. This mm-hmm. is not something that suddenly the government could say in 1970. Oops, you know, right. we thought it was okay. We didn't. We made a mistake. Sure. Um, We've known for, for millennia that, that mercury is a dangerous substance. I think at the time, the government felt, well, this is far away. 
right? Mm. It's up in Northern Ontario. Nobody, quote unquote, nobody lives up there, right? But the only people who live up there, um, they're trying to get rid of. So yeah. it just wasn't seen as a problem until, I guess, in the 70s when the government finally maybe had to face the fact that Indigenous peoples weren't going away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Those Anishinaabe who live up there uh, were starting to be a little bit more vocal about what they were experiencing. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know exactly how mercury is used in the production of pulp and paper, but I do know what its effects are on a person. You know, I think in, in many ways, Indigenous people living in, in remote communities, uh, for, for a government or anyone, a business of, of any kind, uh, to say, oh, it doesn't matter because it's remote, no one's there, you just pointed out earlier about how people like to go fishing. Uh, even mm-hmm. if there was no one there. At some point, mm-hmm. people would be going there to fish. People would, would expand. Communities would thrive. They would start to build up. And that, I'm guessing, poison would still be there. So for this to have been allowed in any way uh, it makes no sense. It's, it's really inexcusable to my mind. And I don't know if you remember um, back in the 80s and 90s when I think Southern society woke up and realized how polluted the Great Lakes were and, mm. and, and the St. Lawrence River. And it was for many of the same kind of industrial mm-hmm. reasons. But in the 80s and 90s, did they ever turn around quickly and clean it up? Mm-hmm. Um, and now people swim sometimes in Lake Ontario and, and you know, we, we boat and I know folks who go fishing down there and uh, there's no worries because they put the effort in. Well, how come they can do that in the south, but they can't do that in the north? Yes, we've all uh, we've all been down this road a few <laughs> times, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, it's not a you know none of this unfortunately is is new. Mm-hmm. I, I, we could all probably think of half a dozen cases in other parts of the country where similar problems exist. Um, I can think of off the top of my head in particular Yellowknife and some of the communities that have had big mines close and are dealing with the residual contamination and loss of jobs. And uh, it's very similar. Mm. Now, we've been talking about Grassy Narrows. And of course, if people go to your uh, website, amnesty.ca or uh, the other, the writeathon.ca, uh, you can see videos that are up there. Uh, one of them is specific to Grassy Narrows, uh, with the youth uh, taking part in that video, asking people to get involved, to write, and talk about the actual uh, harm that they are facing from the mercury poisoning uh, uh, that uh, that you pointed out, uh, about how the they are suffering from certain things, uh, language uh, language disabilities, learning disabilities, um, and and it's it's you know it's unfortunate but it's it's also very encouraging to see them coming forward and sharing and putting themselves out there to uh, be willing to to bring that story forward yeah well we all know that uh it's the terrible cases of community poverty that make the news but uh, not always the, the examples of tremendous leadership and knowledge and um self-determination that's also present and uh, those young people are are really inspiring I've, I've spent some time with them and they're they really 
they love their community so much. They love mm-hmm. the people in their community so much. And, and you know, I asked them once, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking out? You know, you could just go play your Xbox and, and ignore this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they said, yeah, but, you know, they've got little nieces and nephews who are being born, and they have this worry that they're going to see the same mm. effects of mercury poisoning in these little babies that they are living through themselves. And... Um, to me, it does show that those community values, Anishinaabe values, are not disappearing entirely, right? That concern for the community and their role as part of the community is still being preserved. Um, but, gosh, they're just really great people. And that video is so much fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, listen, we're almost out of time, so I just want to see if there's anything uh, that you want to mention specifically or, or say to people about getting involved with this campaign. A couple of years ago, the Right for Rights campaign focused on uh, development out in BC. And at that time, the federal government was flooded with letters, and I remember because I was working up there, and it became such an inconvenience almost in the offices because there were so many calls and so many letters that it couldn't be ignored, mm-hmm. and the government had to start listening. And I remember they began to have speeches in the house and conversations in committees and in caucuses, bringing up the fact that people were concerned about what they were proposing. So to me, that really shows that these letters work Mm. and that uh, getting as many people as possible involved to show the government that they're watching, that they're holding the government accountable to the promises they made to Grassy Narrows. Uh, It's so important and everyone's voice matters in this. Nice, Nicely said, Anna. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show with us today uh, to share your thoughts, to share your concerns, and to ask people to get involved with this International Human Rights Day on December 10th, Right, right for Rights. And you can get a hold of Amnesty International online at amnesty.ca or rightathon.ca, and there you will find all kinds of information that will help you to sign up, get involved, write a letter for a campaign, specifically uh, Grassy Narrows, it is long overdue that this issue should have been dealt with. So uh, please, by all means, reach out. But don't stop there. Uh, I think Anna would agree. If you feel that you would write, like to write a letter on your own directly to the government, directly to your member of parliament, whoever it might be, to get this uh, this situation cleaned up, at least in this community, let's start with one. Let's get it done. Uh, Grassy Narrows needs everyone's help, so please uh, write a letter to support this uh, Right for Rights. And uh, there is an event in Toronto coming up on December the 7th uh, from 1 p.m. in the afternoon until 7 p.m. at night, and that is at the Centre for Social Innovation Annex at 720 Bath Street. It's a free event, so uh, please uh, look that up at uh, writeathon.ca and slash grassy, grassy narrows, and uh, you can find out more, as I say, from there. Anything you'd like to add to that, Anna? It would be good to do a follow-up. Um, you know, in this in, in April, it's the 50th anniversary, and 
we're writing a report that will be released about that time as well. So um, hopefully by then the minister will have announced the money will be <laughs> spent and the care home will be built. But uh, follow-up would be really good. To, to, All right. Let's look, let's look forward to that in the new year in April, as you say. Anna Collins, she's the Indigenous Rights Campaign Advisor for Amnesty International Canada, calling in from Ottawa. We appreciate your call, and we look forward to uh, uh, touching base with you again. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Element FM and Moment of Truth right after this. Welcome back okay. to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. You can also be listening online through the Radio Player Canada app. Just type in ELMNTFM after you've downloaded the app. And uh, 106.5 or ELMNT, or pardon me, 106.5 or 95.7. You could be listening anywhere across the country through the Radio Player Canada app. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show, Greg Henhock. And he is uh, a coach. He's with the... Um, Aboriginal Coaching Module uh, of the National Coaching Certificate Program, I believe, through coach.ca. Uh, Greg, you're getting some, uh, some attention because of this coaching model that you're teaching, uh, specifically for coaches in terms, of, in terms of an inclusive kind of approach and holistic kind of approach you're taking to coaching. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um it's a program that's been around for for a significant amount of time, but uh, we've been trying some different initiatives to try and get it uh, more well known. Mm-hmm. And the the most recent stuff that was that was done was uh, at the University of Windsor, um, professor by the name of Vicky Parashak, and she uh, was interested in in uh, having the the Aboriginal coaching modules. Now it's changed to yeah, um, Aboriginal coaching modules course. Uh, delivered at, at her university, and so then that uh, that sparked some interest within the within the university and colleges un, uh, area community, and uh, it's it's really kind of taken off from there. Now, why? The, uh, what? What's what makes this so attractive to, for people? I know, I know there is a there's sort of a bit of a tie-in with truth truth and reconciliation to try to incorporate more indigenous curriculum and those kind of things. Uh, but what is it about this holistic approach or the specific uh, indigenous approach you're taking that, that is attractive? It was a course that was developed back in the late 1990s. Actually, mid 1994, the concept started. 98, we actually started the project. We debuted the actual course in 2003. And, and obviously, our, um, the information that we're putting out there is, is, is not unique to, to our culture, but... It's just again, it's awareness. It's being able to get it out there to to uh, the broader society. And one of the things I think that's that's starting to come around is just people are looking for. I think they're looking for a different way. I think if you think look at what's going on with the NHL and and the the difficulties that are going on right now, and and probably more just from the standpoint of a a different way of relating with each other. I think that there's there's more awareness to okay what other things can we be doing to make the experiences for our youth when they're involved in sport when they're involved in physical activity how do we make that better so one of the things that that the TRC or TRC has been able to enable is that obviously there's some there's some monies available to run run programs 
or to at least explore what's out there for professional development. And in the process, uh, universities, other organizations are starting to find the, the ACM. Um, one of the challenges that we've had over the years, the course, because it was labeled Aboriginal Coaching uh, Modules, people have the perception that it's only for Aboriginal people. Mm. And in reality, one of the mandates of the of for the start or the development of the actual course was to help educate uh, non-Indigenous people uh, that we're going to be working with or working in, if they were coaching in uh, an Indigenous community, a lot of times in the isolated communities in the North, uh, St. Nunavut territories, um, there are RCMP officers, there are healthcare workers that are non-Indigenous, but they're working in those communities, so they get involved in, in helping out with either hockey teams or something like that. So, um, you know, one of the things that we wanted to be able to do was be able to, to give them some insight as to some of the nuances and the differences that they were going to encounter when they went into those communities. So that was one of the mandates, but again, I think the name, unfortunately, has deterred uh, people from taking taking it. But once people do take it, they look at it as being a great course on on life as well. Um, and that speaks to the idea of the holistic approach, that uh, you don't silo or you don't uh, segregate your different parts of your life. You don't compartmentize uh, different parts of your life. It's all part of one big picture, and that's the way that you have to treat it. And maintaining that balance is what helps maintain your wellness. And uh, so I think... Once people take it, there's a lot of other people that they, they try to encourage other people, well, you should really take this. Um, we've had, basically, we, we get a constant stream of, of comments that they believe every, every coach in Canada, and now that we're uh, delivering a, a little bit more in the U.S. as well, um, sporadically here and there, they're saying, you know, boy, you know, this, this is something that maybe people should hear, uh, all coaches, um, you know, and again, we have delivered it to uh, other other organizations. I've, I personally have delivered to a couple of police organizations. Um, I've delivered to some social services organizations. Uh, I've also delivered to uh, a music uh, academy at their camp. They, they felt that it was uh, um, very important for their, their leaders that were going to be running their music camp. Uh, that it was a valuable information. A music academy that well that was a that's I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that's well, it was what, someone who was interested in sports and and music, and so then she says, "Hey, I'm involved in a music uh, camp that runs in the summertime," and she goes, "I'd love my leaders to take this." So well, that uh, there again that uh, shows the the uh, and, and how well this adapts to different areas, and as you say, it's holistic. It's not about siloing. It's not about uh, 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 turning your life into to, to the, uh, compartments. But I think mm-hmm. that that you know you said it's not uh, it's it's not uh, it's for any athlete, which is wonderful. But the the word indigenous or, or Aboriginal was there, which was uh, kind of turning people a little bit off or thinking, oh, well, this isn't specifically for us. It can only be for indigenous or or, or Aboriginal athletes. But of course, yeah. when you when you talked about the University of Windsor and even there, they said everyone should be taking this. Uh, I'm I'm surprised because you say it's been around a while, and and having an, a holistic approach uh, isn't necessarily new. I don't think either. But there must be no. something about this that you're doing, or the way you're delivering it. Or let's take it a little bit further. 
Uh, something we didn't tell people about uh, off the top of the show is that you, you're a Mohawk, you're Bear Clan, and you're from Six Nations. Now, yes. I mention that because uh, Six Nations is no stranger to sports. In fact, mm-hmm. as you and I both know, uh, the sport of lacrosse came from the, the community of Six Nations, the Nations of Six Nations, mm-hmm. and it was called the Creator's Game. And that, uh, right away, uh, I started to think about that approach that the game had taken as, uh, as a way of, uh, of being one for the Creator's entertainment, but also it, there's, an, uh, there's a holistic approach to that game. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we promote again is is getting back to getting our communities, and then hopefully that all communities are are going to be looking at uh, what was sport and physical activity for in the first place. Mm. I think in in this day and age where you know it's possible to make an, an incredibly comfortable living if you become a professional. So you know everyone's dream. Or I, I shouldn't say everyone, but a, a lot of people's dream, or especially a lot of parents' dream, sometimes, is for for their child to to become a professional and and uh, either be very very well known or also to have an incredibly comfortable living. But you know, in reality, you know, like the creators' game, like lacrosse, lacrosse wasn't considered, you know, within our vernacular, it wasn't considered a game. It was an event, and it had a specific purpose. Its specific purpose was not only to, to entertain the creator, but also honor the creator mm. to, to say, you know, thank you for what you have provided for us and mm. what you continue to provide for us and, and your teachings and your lessons. And I think within history, history books, you, you get the one-sided interpretation of what lacrosse was, you know, and then they said, well, that, in the books you'll see that it was for conflict and it was a way of mm. solving conflict. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, that indigenous people were perfect, but, you know, you know, we we had our differences in, in within regions and within nations, but uh, we had moved to a point, especially with the Great Law of Peace, with the uh, Haudenosaunee and the Iroquois Confederacy, that that we had gotten to the point where we said, well, no, that's not productive for our for any of our people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking at that again, looking back at what was it for in the first place, you know, and and it wasn't for career it wasn't for obviously it wasn't for power and money back in the day but it was for different purposes and so getting back to the the reason why it's such a beneficial pursuit goes back to you know the traditional roots of say for example again something like lacrosse but when you delve into it into it in the larger society or the you know the the non-indigenous society um you know you can you get into some pretty interesting things as well um it was uh, actually sport was called uh, what was it physical physical Christianity, mm. and and that it was in order to be uh, a well-rounded Christian, they then started finding the value of physical activity. Uh, up until that point, that's actually happened just after just uh, around the end of the Victorian age, and that because within the Victorian age, if if it didn't serve um, the church or it didn't uh, serve the the budding economy then things were not considered to be worthwhile. And uh, so the sport or physical activity wasn't seen as something that's something that you pursued. But then, you know, the thinkers of the time looked at it and said, well, you know, no, there's, there's benefit, health benefits, there's wellness benefits to, to being involved in physical activity, in sport, in games, 
And uh, so then they, you know, they went into the idea that no, this is this is an aspect of of Christianity that is that is beneficial. And so it, it took off from there. So again, you've got similar, you've got similar um, development of of the concepts of of why be involved in physical activity, why be involved in sport. And so I think that's that in itself. I think people again are starting to look back to it and say. You know why? Why do I want to put my my son or daughter into into sports? Mm. And what's the reason? And so you know, most of the time, it comes down to well, we'd like them to be able to their social development. We want them to develop time management. Mm-hmm. We like them. We'd like them to be able to do all these other life skills. And we like you know, we we feel that sport can help them develop those things, as opposed to you know, it's all about winning. It's all about it's all about uh, future success with money and career. So mm-hmm. I think, again, I think that our approach um, kind of emphasizes, emphasizes that side. Mm-hmm. But also going, going back to one of your, your points when you're leading into this particular question is that we do deliver in a way which is quite different than the rest of the NASA coaching certification program in that we run, like, so we, we actually we take the concept of indigenous people tend to be more hands-on uh, practical learners rather than uh, book learners or even the old pedagogy of just standing in, in what we call being say, a sage on the stage mm-hmm. and that we're going to be a teacher or an instructor that stands at the front of the room uh, writing notes on the board. Uh, students are sitting uh, up straight with their backs, you know, their hands clasped in front of the desk in front of them and they're paying attention that way, and that's all they do, you know, or they take notes. Mm. Um, they're just listening to information being being thrust upon them. I wouldn't even say being given to them. It's just, you know, it's being delivered to them and told to them um, without a whole lot of interactivity. And, you know, research has shown, you know, I, I, I actually taught secondary school for 32 years before I retired from teaching, and uh, looking at the old the old pedagogies that have had changed even during my career, but the idea of being more interactive is, is far more beneficial, I think, for all peoples. And that's what we do. We, we use activities to encourage and to spark conversation. We use activities to spark um, thoughts that maybe, hey, no, let's, re- you know, how, how can we relate this particular, re- particular uh, activity to now what we're talking about with the concepts within the course? Um, how do we build relationships? What are the importance of relationships? Um, once you've built a good relationship, now how does that help with your overall success? Um, I was recently in a in a um, at the North American Society for Sociology of Sport in Virginia Beach uh, just last month and delivered an average uh, an ECM. And at the end of the course, one there was a one young professor or associate professor, I think he was uh, from the U.S. I believe it was, and he said. Uh, this is the first coaching course, he said, that, that uh, didn't focus on winning. And I said, okay. I said, that, that, you know, I'm glad that you've come to that conclusion surrounding the course. I said, but we're talking about winning a success here, a successful life, a successful mm. happy life. I said, so we are talking about winning, but just framing it in a different term. We're not talking about winning on the scoreboard. We're talking about winning for the purpose of why we do physical activity and sport. Mm. Right, I'm glad you, you came back to that and mentioned that point. I, I wanted to bring that up. And, and I'm also happy that you, you mentioned about the, the idea of the approach being different uh, because that's where I was kind of going with in terms of that connection to 
such things as the the uh, the creator's game uh, lacrosse and and how mm-hmm. that helped you and and other indigenous uh, uh, coaches to to bring that kind of a of a different uh, uh, approach to to the uh, uh, to that the teaching uh, program, and also just like you said, not necessarily focusing on winning. Now, uh, just before I, I I go there, I just want to let everyone know that they're listening to uh, Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, one hundred six point five in Toronto, ninety five point seven in Ottawa. And my guest is Greg, Greg Henghock, and he is a coach with the Aboriginal uh, Coaching Module uh, through uh, Coach.ca, I believe. Now, uh, Greg, I'm wondering if you can tell me about how long you've been involved with this, uh, with this, with this module, and how long you've been doing it, and 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 how long you've been involved with this Coach.ca. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the actual course right now is being administered by the uh, Coaching Association of Canada, and mm-hmm. that's the, the website, coach.ca. So that's the branch of Sport Canada that looks after coaching development. And so the National Coaching Certification Program has been around since the early 1970s. And actually, I took uh, one of my first courses when I was in first year university, which would have been 1980. And so I, I got involved in the NCCP quite early uh, in its in its you know development um my nccp number is like ninety three thousand, and now when someone registers to be involved in any of the nccp courses they get a number that's in the six million mm. something like that <laughs> so um uh, i i've been involved with the actual program ncc program for a long time um but uh as far as the acm goes uh, i had mentioned that you know the the concept was yes was in development around about 1994, 1993, 1994. There were, there were um, roundtable discussions, regional roundtable discussions that took place all, around, all across Canada. And there was actually, I think, one in the U.S., if not, I'm not mistaken. But most of them, the bulk of them were, were within Canada because it was a Canadian initiative. And it was actually sparked by, by Alwyn Morris uh, from Ganawagia, just outside Montreal, who had competed in the, at the 1984 Olympics in, in, in Los Angeles and won a gold and a bronze with his, his partner in canoe kayak. And it came out of that and a, and a gentleman by the name of Rick Brandt who was involved in coaching and there were a few other partners within um, the coaching community, actually a gentleman by the name of Richard Way, uh, who is now the CEO of, of Sport for Life based out of uh, uh, Victoria, B.C. There was uh, a few other individuals from Sport Canada that were heavily involved in helping uh, create something that was going to help Indigenous communities heal. Mm. And so that's kind of what the focus of the, of the regional roundtable discussions was. What is, what's needed? What, what can we do or what can we use to help Indigenous communities heal? Because of, and again, when we say heal, from uh, the effects, the impacts of colonization, the impacts of residential school and and again, probably more to the forefront because of truth and reconciliation. So what came out of those discussions and a lot from elders who were involved um, was that um, sport would be a great vehicle. Physical activity would be a great vehicle because it's always been revered within Indigenous communities. And as we've already mentioned, um, for other purposes, um, physical activity, sport, games, um, had a different place or at least uh, a different place than now. 
Um, mm. But if you look back again at the history within within non-indigenous society as well, it, it did. It, gave, it had the same purposes. Mm. It, had, it didn't have purposes of career and money and all that. So um, the elders decided or determined that, that sport would be such a great vehicle, but then now what do we do with it? Mm. So now we've identified sport. Sport can be something that can be very powerful in helping our communities heal. But what what do we do with that now? Mm. So then they said, well, one of the things is we need to have better experiences for our youth when they're involved in sport. So how do we do that? Well, then we need to have better trained or we need to have trained coaches dealing with our youth and running the programs. So a lot of, not a very few indigenous people were becoming, were taking the NCP, NCCP courses. And one of the reasons for that was they looked at it as, again, as, as being culturally different than, than the way that we might approach things. Uh, also, I think that uh, the other part of it was that, again, not a lot of Indigenous people aspired to go to higher levels of sport, like, like Alwyn did, getting to the Olympics. Um, if you look at our percentage of population in Canada versus the percentage of high-performance athletes, um, those two numbers just are, are very far apart. So that was also one of the, one of the missions of, of Alwyn, is he wanted to see uh, more Indigenous people using some of our, our physical gifts and getting to that level. So once again, it came back to the question, how do we do this? Mm. Well, we need to get more coaches mm. and we need to get better coaches and so if they're non-indigenous coaches they need to know the nuances so they said okay we need to develop a coaching course that speaks more specifically to the needs of indigenous people or identifies some of the subtle differences because in reality again we're all people um, my grandmother constantly in in helping in growing up told me um, you know people are people first and uh, that's how we approach it and that's how the two of wampum and the great law of peace is, is around as well. And that you've got, you know, again, you've got two people or two nations walking into the future, but they're very close, but they're parallel lines. So, you know, taking those concepts and putting them into a coaching course was then the next daunting task. So uh, in 1999, in the spring of 1999, there was one final um, roundtable discussions just across the river from Ottawa in Elmer, Quebec. And, um, the was it Chateau Cartier, I believe it was. I think it was like seven days, six nights, where you had about 130 uh, sport uh, stakeholders, whether it's Indigenous people, elders. There was elders from every province, every territory. Um, there were sport people. There were some government people involved in sport. And we hashed out, and I was fortunate enough to be asked to be involved in those roundtable meetings as well. And we hashed out the content, which was... Number one was going to be uh, holistic teaching. Number two was dealing with racism. And number three at the time was healthy lifestyle uh, and nutrition, which we have since in one of our revisions changed to individual wellness and community, individual and community wellness because we feel that's more of a holistic picture than mm. what it was previously named. So that process actually took four years. Mm. It went from 1999 to 2003. Um, I was back and forth to Ottawa several times because I was, again, asked to be on the project advisor group that helped develop the program. I was also fortunate to be asked to write some of the pieces in the holistic teaching module, which, uh, again, I was very honored to be asked to, to be part of this project. And so uh, in 2003, the, the National uh, the Coaching Association of Canada, they run every year uh, a sport leadership conference, and it moves around the country, and it's sponsored right now by Petro Canada and uh, the Petro Canada Sport Leadership in 2003 was in Vancouver 
And so that's where we debuted it. Um, we'd actually done some piloting down in the East Coast, actually in Halifax, prior to that. But the the uh, the debut of the coaching modules happened in in 2003 at the Petrocan Leadership in in Vancouver. Um, after that, though, we went through a period of about five years, five years where we didn't have recognition within the National Coaching Certification Program. Even though they had been a partner in helping to develop the program, um, there wasn't a specific space within the, the NCCP system. So it took about five years of a lot of discussions and debate as to where it was going to sit within that program. And I think it was around about 2007, 2000, late 2007, 2008. I remember meetings in Saskatchewan, and we, we were able to then have it... Um, uh, included in the NASA coaching certification courses. Now, at that time, it was still being delivered. <coughs> oh, excuse me. It was being administered by the National Aboriginal Sports Circle. So when we talked about 1994, the Aboriginal Sports Circle, mm -hmm. the national body, um, that was created about the same time, right around about 1994, 1995. And again, that was something that was the brainchild of, of uh, Alwyn Morris and a few other um, leaders across the country. I know that Alex Nelson from BC was a, was a, was a big uh, a contributor to the development of the Aboriginal Sports Circle. And then later on, the North American Indigenous Games Council came out of that same kind of process. So uh, in, in developing that and getting that put together, um, you know, that, that far back, um, that's the body that was delivering or administering the ACM, the Aboriginal Coaching Modules. And then they ran into some uh, some difficulties, and so they um, shut down operations for a while, from about 2008 till about 2012, I think it was. So during that time, then the Coaching Association of Canada said, "This is a valuable program. We believe in it. Now that you know we've found a place for it within our system, uh, they took over the administration mm. and the delivery of the ACM. And uh, now that the National Aboriginal Sports Circle is back in in functioning mode, but just in starting to get back on its feet. Um, there will be at, at some point, I would think, discussions with regards to uh, handing over the the ACM delivery back to the ASC. Um, actually, when speaking to the Coaching Association's uh, CEO Lorraine Lafreniere, she had spoken about the idea of. She said, "We're the caretakers of this of this great program for now, but." we definitely see it moving back towards the ASC uh, in the future or some type of different type of delivery partnership, um, which I think is probably more realistic in that uh, the capacity of the, of the NCCP system is something that it would be a step backwards if we didn't kind of continue to tap into the resources that exist within that delivery system rather than trying to just go on and, and create one of our own. So I think, I think the discussions that will go surrounding that will will probably create some type of delivery partnership rather than one body, one or the other body delivering it exclusively. Mm. So, uh, Greg, thanks for that wonderful explanation and, and the information. You know, two things that jump out of me out of this, uh, we're quickly coming to the end of our time, but uh, I, I wanted to mention, you said winning, that, that this program from somewhere you're presenting this, that they said, uh, this is the first time we, we've had someone uh, not focus on winning. And the second thing goes back to that holistic approach. So I guess they're the two things that, that sound different to this. 
you don't focus necessarily on winning in terms of a specific game. You're, you're, it's talking about winning life, so it's holistic in that in that regard. And I was just wondering that person that stood up and said to you, "Hey, this, this doesn't focus on winning." Were they were they being uh, were they surprised in in a positive way, or were they thinking that this can't help me because it doesn't focus on winning? I think he was surprised that he felt the day was a success. Mm. And, and being, I think, from the U.S., mm. you know, the, the U.S. has a bit of a different lens that they view sport sure. on than in Canada and, and possibly the rest of the world. But, uh, again, it was just, I think, compared to a coaching course that he was looking at, um, the coaching courses that he may have been involved in are, are about, you know, this is how you're going to win. This mm-hmm. is how you're going to have success. And again, that being the, the singular measure of, of, of coaching success is being, being a champion or being, being the winner. And I think he was surprised more than, I don't think it was a negative. Um, I think he was trying to figure out whether it was a positive. Mm. <laughs> um, but it did, again, it, it did exactly what we hope to do. Again, because within the course, we don't tell people this is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. We get people thinking about what's possible. Right. What, how can I incorporate this in? What, we, we actually get a lot of people reflecting on what they're doing and what they have done uh, with their coaching. And, and a lot of times, again, when we deliver to non-coaching organizations, leadership roles. So when you're in a leadership role, what are the things that you've done in order to do your leading? Um, so take a look at that. And, and are you able to incorporate? Are you able to change? Are you able to improve? Because that's really what we'd like them to think about. You know, we're we're not coming in there with a with a definitive. This is how you're going to do it. Mm. This is how you're going to understand Indigenous people better. Um, this is you know, do this, and and you're going to have great success working in Indigenous community. Mm. We give them the idea that no, you've already got probably some great um, skills and and ideas, and maybe even knowledge around leading and teaching and instructing and being a facilitator, but. You know, there's, a, you know, so many different methods out there, you know, so how do you incorporate the best of both worlds mm. with Indigenous people and non-Indigenous? But you have to know the Indigenous side first. And, and again, that, that type of education just isn't out there. Right. So I think that uh, he, again, he was saying, you know, I really enjoyed today, but I just, you know, I, I didn't expect this. I didn't, it didn't feel like a coaching course. <laughs> and I think he, and he felt that from, from the standpoint of, yeah, winning's, winning is the focus of a, of a coaching course. Right. That's been, that's been echoed over the almost 20 years that I've been involved in, in this program and that even when we train new facilitators to deliver the program, I think they, they're taken back a little bit because, you know, educating in this way takes more work than if you just have a canned delivery mm. that you just, you put the PowerPoints out there, you do the exercise, you read the book. And again, our approach is much different than that. And, and we've actually had to defend it, uh, especially when we were taken over by the NCCP for its delivery. Um, but uh, again, they're adjusting, they're making changes like that too. Um, you know, I understand the other side of it and that, you know, it needs to be repeatable. It needs to be a little bit standardized. But what we try to standardize is the learning objectives rather than the delivery methods because we believe that the, 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 uh, the delivery methods, the pedagogy, has to be adjusting to the communities that exist, or to the area that you're in, and to the people that you're working with. And so we we want consistent learning ob- objectives for sure, but our methods are sometimes going to be a little bit different to in order to suit the needs of the people that we're working with. Right. 
Uh, Greg Hainhock, and he is uh, from Six Nations. He's a Mohawk and Bear Clan, and he is a master learning facilitator for the Aboriginal Coaching Module with the National Coaching Certificate Program. And uh, he's been speaking to us from his home on Six Nations, so appreciate him taking the time to do that. That's our show for today. I want to say Nyawa and Miigwech and Wanishi for everyone tuning in and paying attention to the show. We look forward to having you uh, back again next time. Onigihia.